This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Chipotle's Franklin Chipotle in the news this week with a prototype they're testing. It's basically a digital drive-through. It's kind of like a ghost kitchen with a walk-up window and drive-through. There's no dining room, no frontline production. You, know, you used to go through the, the little assembly line there as they put on your little additives and so forth. What do you think about Chipotle just kind of getting a almost, I wouldn't say labor uh, free uh, setup, but certainly losing a lot of their labor in this model. Sounds like another uh, result of the pandemic. Um, you know, not having to clean those dining rooms and not having to turn those tables and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think probably is making a lot of sense to a lot of brands that were operating that way during the pandemic. Um, yeah, no, I, I like it. Yeah, um, that's it's interesting. And Chipotle, you know, popular, obviously, hugely successful restaurant company, but you know, the younger crowd likes that digital stuff. And it can, you can order, only order digitally. Um, and, you know, you can, you can pick up, like I said, at the drive through or walk-up. But you can only order digitally. Um, and I think their crowd, their, their, uh, their, their demographic uh, is, is going to embrace that. And, you know, you get, going back to the, 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 uh, the, the virus, you get out of the social distancing problems because you're not really interfacing at all in any meaningful way with customers, maybe just through a window. So, Franklin, what's your go-to at Chipotle? Uh, I'll, I almost always get the burrito, the the full stuff full with everything. I do not miss the topping on the, on the bar there. But every now and again, I will switch it up to the tacos if I want to mix it up um, and uh, get a couple different meats. So I'll, I'll do the three tacos from time to time. They do have some new meat selections on the menu, that um, that I tried out a couple of weeks ago that are absolutely delicious. And I, I want to say it's carnitas tips or something like that. But go to your Chipotle if you haven't recently and check it out because they've got some new menu items. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the bowls. I like how they have the bowls. For some reason, you put it in a burrito and I feel some obligation to eat every last bit of a burrito sitting in front of me. And then I'm in the emergency room for the next three days. Somehow a bowl, I can regulate myself better. And uh, I, I do love the bowls. My oldest daughter, Elizabeth, huge fan of uh, Chipotle. So it'll be interesting to see how this new model takes off. And on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go superside. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the Starbucks union battle rolls on with Boston becoming the new battleground as two locations in the city filed with the NLRB this week to conduct an organizing election. We are joined by journalist Tori Bedford with WGBH in Boston to give us the latest and greatest on what's happening on the ground with particular insight into the organizing community itself. And for additional perspective, we are joined by Phil Wilson, President and General Counsel of the Labor Relations Institute, for his insights on Buffalo, Boston, and how employers should be preparing for 2022. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the Legislative Scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Cole. And Franklin, uh, it's Starbucks, Starbucks, Starbucks all the time. A uh, lot lot going on this week. The uh, The purge has has moved on to Boston, a new venue for the for the Starbucks war. Um, and we are joined by two guests today. Uh, one, a journalist for WGBH or GBH Boston, 
Um, Tori Bedford is going to kind of walk us through what's going on on the ground in Boston and kind of some behind the scenes conversations she's had. And then Phil Wilson from the Labor Relations Institute uh, will join us and kind of give us some sense of the broader picture and what 2022 may look like for employers. Franklin, what is your take before we get to those interviews on what's happening in Boston? Yeah, well, we've, we've seen um, we've seen the effort spread from what started in Buffalo and then into Arizona and now to Boston. And so um, my sense is that there's an organic aspect to this, but I look forward to Tori and uh, getting her take on uh, how top-down organized this is or how much kind of bottom-up um, it is. That will be the most interesting part of the interview to me. And on that note, let's get right to that interview. Well, listeners uh, will recall that uh, for each of the last few weeks, we've been giving them an update on the latest and greatest of what's happening with Starbucks. Obviously, most notably, the activities in Buffalo last week where three uh, union elections were actually held and, and the NLRB um, went through their process. One union w- was certified. Uh, one store failed to get a majority vote for the union. And one, I think, is still kind of in in. In, in limbo. And we talked about how we anticipate the spread. And right on cue, Mesa, Arizona, a store in, in Mesa filed initial paperwork to have a, a for the NLRB to conduct an election. Lo and behold, this week, two additional uh, Starbucks restaurants have begun the process of requesting union representation in the Boston metro area. And to help us sort it out, we have an actual Boston expert. Tori Bedford from GBH Boston, the NPR station. Uh, Tori, I've listened to a lot of the shows that your station has put out that are that are nationally syndicated. So I think a lot of a lot of people know WGBH, but I really appreciate Tori you joining us and helping us walk through what's going on in Boston. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great podcast, and I love that intro. A Boston expert. That's <laughs> Thank you so much. Good, good, good. All right, so let's get to it. So I, I kind of gave the, the the headline here that uh, two restaurants have begun the process on Monday uh, we, uh, for the for the NLRB to conduct a, a union election. Um, Tori, tell me what's going on. Have you been? You know, is, do you do you see this staying with two restaurants? What's the climate? And we all know Boston's a a labor friendly town. Marty Walsh is the Secretary of Labor. You know, it's it's a, it's a, it's a strong union heritage up in that part of the country. What's going on on the ground there? So in the past year, I think that we have seen, obviously, Boston has been affected just as everywhere else has been affected by, you know, the coronavirus pandemic causing labor shortages. I think a lot of people were kind of, you know, coming to terms with whether or not food service work and the conditions that they were experiencing were something that they could tolerate, particularly in this environment where there are serious safety issues that were presented. And I think that it is truly, you know, this, the initial domino kind of, at least in Boston, started with a small chain of coffee shops called Pavement Coffee House. And, you know, they were able to get recognized by the owner there without an NLRB vote. Following that, Darwin's in Cambridge, which is the greater Boston area. And then um, there were three in Somerville recently that announced that their intent to unionize. And so these two shops, one in Alston and one in Brookline, um, they recently announced their intent to unionize. And they were very inspired by the workers in Buffalo. And they were also very inspired by the workers at Pavement, 
but they noticed that the response from local coffee shops here was very, just vastly different from the response that Starbucks had given to workers in other locations. And so they thought, if anything, that's more of a reason why we should, you know, join in and kind of, they're hoping, the organizers are hoping as well from the Starbucks Workers United campaign that um, this will cause, you know, start really a national movement for this chain. And do you, you know, the, the one, it's, it's, it's been all over the board with Starbucks a little bit. It's kind of, some's been organic. Boss, uh, Buffalo, excuse me, had a little more of a linkage and an affiliation with the SCIU. Is that what's playing out in, in Boston as well? Or are they just more organic, unaffiliated events, it, it, campaigns at this point? It's the same organizers. It's Workers United. Okay. And, it, and the... Workers United initially, I think, had started out with pavement, but then Unite Here took over that campaign. And so I think at this point, it's these two unions actually going through their own kind of negotiations of who is going to take what unionizing campaign for who else is going to try to unionize. Um, I think that so right now I checked in with some of the organizers today to see if there had been any movement uh, since last week. And there really hasn't been. They said they were going to overnight their cards uh, for the NLRB vote count. They got um, quite a few people. There were some maybes, I guess, that they were trying to turn over. But um, at the there were 47 people, around 47 people working at both locations. And I think some 36 cards of approval that they had already gotten in the last two days before they announced. And so they feel pretty confident about the vote. But obviously, their biggest fear right now is that the more time it takes before the vote, the more time Starbucks corporate has to engage with workers in a way that might defeat their intentions to unionize. Yeah. And that's not a, you know, that, that seems like, you know, about three quarters of, of, of the employees filed a card. That's about the, the line, you know, any, any less, any lower level of support on the cards, they you know, unlikely they'll go forward with it because a lot of people will, you know, sign a card just to kind of go with the flow a little bit. People will change their mind a- along the, the way. So that's, that's kind of right on that line at three quarter card uh, return level. Um, so that you answered my next question about exactly how many employees we're talking about. I was struck with the Buffalo um, uh, election. We we're talking about in, in one case, 20 votes. You know, and the the store that that chose not to be unionized was a twelve to eight vote. So it's <laughs> a few votes can go a long way in in this this type of uh, effort. So do you you know putting your putting a crystal ball, putting on your your, your futurist hat? Is this just a beginning in Boston for a other segments of the restaurant and retail segment, or for Starbucks itself? Are you do you foresee from your conversations that Man, they're going to go after all the Starbucks in the markets. What, what are you, what are you, what are you predicting might happen up there? So GBH has actually had a multimedia series called The Big Quit, which is looking at this phenomenon of people just leaving their jobs, you know, switching careers, having these sort of middle of their life or, or wherever in their life moments of realizing that life is short and that they want to be doing something else and that you know, kind of a, they're not going to take it anymore moment. And I think that if, you know, organizers would say that if there was a time to unionize, it's now. It's when you realize that you have a lot of worth as a worker. It doesn't matter what your job is. I think that we often associate food service work and 
working at a corporation as something that, you know, I worked in coffee shops in college. And I think if there were issues at the coffee shop, I would just think, well, I'll just whatever, like, there's so much turnover here. I'll just work somewhere else or like, get another job. I'm not gonna be here forever. I'm just here to like, pay my rent or you help pay my rent because you weren't making that much. And it's just a lot of young people that have this expectation of getting taken advantage of. But there are a lot of older people who work minimum wage jobs. And young people also deserve to be able to make ends meet and not have to work multiple, you know, food service jobs to be able to pay for a, you know, it's a living wage. Rent in Boston is extremely expensive. Rent in Cambridge and Somerville is extremely expensive. And I think that if you look at how inflation lines up with the minimum wage over the years, I think a lot of people are questioning that now. I think a lot of people are just questioning the entire system of how pretty much everything works when it comes to our our jobs and how much we're willing to give. And I don't know, I think that there is a movement here. I think there's a a massive kind of windfall that's happening. And I I do think that these little shops joining together, whether it's, you know, I think it was 12 to eight was the other one that is under dispute. And uh, yeah, the, the nine, it was 19 to eight was the winning one. Right. And these are like small numbers, right. And Starbucks, when you go to Starbucks, I mean, you know, you're seeing young people who are probably students or whatever, and they're saying, well, we have a right to have a say in how things work at the company. We make the coffee. That is the most important thing. At the end of the day, if we don't make the coffee, nobody gets the coffee. So I don't know. I mean, I I don't know how it's going to turn out, but yeah, it's exciting. How do you, um, so I I think you're right. I, I think, all these workers feel that exactly what you just voiced there and, and, and believe it. And how are they communicating or do you get the sense that there's cross pollination and political networks or just online among these different workers in these different coffee shops? You know, are they getting together? Are they talking, you know, how, how do those kind of pieces fit together? You, you know, is this, is this just how, are these birds of a feather and they're just coming to this realization in their own, in their own silos in different places, or are they kind of cross coordinating and communicating across different employers? I think that the latter, I think a lot of Boston is a very small town. First of all, it's not, there's an onion article about how people in Boston wake up every day and pretend they live in a real city. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's great, whatever, but it's small. And a lot of folks who work in, you know, these kinds of jobs, you know, it is a lot of younger people, but you'll have other friends that work in retail. There are some of the workers at the Starbucks who are on the organizing committee are friends with people who organized a pavement. There's a lot of communication that goes on. I think that they were very closely watching Buffalo. I don't know if they were in contact with anyone in Buffalo, but I do know that they- That was my next question. Yeah, but I do know that they were in contact with- people here who are organizing. And I know that the union organizers are the same people. So I imagine that they would offer advice or, you know, talk about what experiences had happened because it's the same union. It's Workers United Labor Union. I was going to ask as part of that, as you're, as you're kind of um, talking through that for the people that aren't from from Boston, all these independent coffee shops geographically kind of how do they spread out? Because there's so much activity in the greater Boston area. And, you know, 
some of them maybe a couple miles apart or 30 miles apart. And, you know, in this day and age, you don't have to be down the street necessarily to be communicating and, and organizing together. But give us a sense of just kind of the geography of where a lot of this is happening in the greater Boston area. So what they do at the Alston location is they get a pigeon and they write a little message on a receipt and then they send that pigeon to the Coolidge Corner location. And that's how they've been going back and forth. So it's not traceable, which is great. They have had some issues with a rabies breakout, rabies breakout, but it's fine. Um, No, it's all geographically pretty close, like everything in Boston. Pavement has, I think, eight locations. So they had the most locations and they've been the most spread out. The three shops in Somerville are all in the same neighborhood, like within the same few blocks. And the Alston Starbucks location and the Coolidge Corner location are down the street from one another. The Alston one is, um, it's on, it's off of Harvard Ave on Com Ave in that corner. If you've ever been to Alston, it's like the concentration of where all the college students hang out. All the bars are over there. And then just up the street in Brookline, that's where the Starbucks is. Um, So it's really just like a matter of a few blocks. But yeah, I think they've also been holding meetings together, those two locations. They really worked as a collaborative effort. And they've also had a lot of meetings to prepare for what they see as inevitable union busting. So they are prepared for what Starbucks calls listening sessions, where they talk about the union. I don't know if you saw this video that came out. It was on Vimeo internally, and then it, someone published it on Twitter where Starbucks was expl- had someone from corporate explain how unions work, and they had someone voting yes or no, and they just voted no on the card. Um, just these little subtle, you know, subtle things that they've been doing. They're sort of preparing for that, and they've been meeting, you know, in person and on Zoom and texting they have their text chains and there's been a lot of collaboration between those two locations and between the previous like organizers from the previous shops and i, and I think Wayne and franklin i've just talked about this subject for so long but i think i think in the restaurant industry there's you know i'm gonna go out on a on a tangent here but i think there's a misunderstanding of of the level of angst in within the workforce on how they feel they were treated slash discarded during the pandemic. And on top of that, how they feel that their employer may or may not have adequately gone to the, to the, you know, to the, the lengths they could have to, you know, prioritize their health and safety. And I, and I think, I think a lot of, of the employer communities reflexively thinks, think is about wages and benefits. And what's new in this space right now, and Franklin's done a good job of kind of educating our audience on this, is there's 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 still the wage and benefit thing, but it is layered against this really disgruntled and you know offended, hurt, whatever term you want, workforce that is that is really have, have their nose out of joint because how poorly they feel that they were treated during the pandemic. And I think I think. The, the boardrooms around the industry are having trouble catching up to that reality. I think that's part of the challenge that they're having here is getting getting down to the nub of why this is happening and why it's happening now. Right. I agree. I think, you know, for instance, Pavement, the manager there, some employees were upset because the owner of Pavement changed the policy about customers wearing masks at some point during the pandemic and changed it back later. But you know, said people don't have to wear masks during these specific conditions or, you know, coming in, they don't have to wear masks and kind of changed some policies around pickup and delivery stuff and whether or not people could hang out in the cafes. And the 
workers there weren't a part of that decision. They didn't feel like they were included in that decision and they would not have gone with the same in the same direction that the owner did. So that's a great example because, you know, they're the ones on the ground dealing with the public and they felt like it wasn't safe. I think this was even before there was a vaccine or before vaccines were readily available. And so these are, you know, these are questions that are definitely brought up. I think you mentioned restaurants. I also, you know, Unite Here does a lot of work with hotel workers. And these are a lot of jobs where you are face-to-face dealing with people and you have to, to make money to survive. And yeah, it just may not feel totally safe. And if you don't feel like you have agency in that decision, then that does sometimes feel like a violation. I think with the Starbucks um, letter to Kevin Johnson, it was really interesting to me because I brought up wages, I brought up benefits, and they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll get into a conversation about all of that later, that those are important things to us. But Starbucks does pay us pretty well. They pay us usually higher than minimum wage when we come in. The raises are, you know, it's pretty commensurate, I think, largely. They said that, you know, it, Starbucks really prides itself as a company in providing benefits and providing higher wages on average, you know, not super high, not as high as some people think the minimum wage should be, but it's not, you know, it's not like Kellogg's just replacing all of the workers, right? Like that's, I mean, that was within a union decision context or Amazon where they're saying, they're talking about all these labor practices, like people having to urinate in bottles or work themselves to death or whatever. Like those are other corporations that have different kind of, we're all talking about different things, but they were saying that they really feel like they want agency. And I think that COVID has really introduced that idea. I mean, it's, it's always been a part of unionizing is to have some, some say and to be able to really use your power that you have. But I think now a lot of people are realizing that they have more power than they previously had thought. So, so Franklin, I know you've talked about it before, but remind, remind the audience, you know, what, what is the process from here? So they've filed these, this this petition with the NLRB, remind us what the process is going forward. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know exactly where they are in the process. Maybe you can uh, jump in here, Tori, but they're going to argue over the size of the bargaining unit. And, you know, once, once the NLRB rules in that essentially uh, election date will be set and it will be, you know, a matter of some weeks and they'll cast ballots um, and they'll be able to do that a couple of ways by mailing it in or taking it in. Um, and then they'll count the ballots and the uh, the two sides will have an opportunity to argue over the legitimacy of those ballots and make other arguments. And then that will determine uh, the election. Then it, it can be appealed in the courts after that, which is probably what's going to happen in, in the case of the Buffalo elections. Um, but um, at that point, you'll either have a union or not. Um, and, and Tori, you know, what am I, are there specifics from the ground there that you want to add any additional color to that in terms of the process? No, I mean, that's the process, but it's all in the future. I think this happened really recently and, you know, workers were overnighting cards to the NLRB. They were saying, this would be great if we could have an election tomorrow, right? Now that we have all this energy around this. And so that's where the real there are, there are two, I think, major battles ahead of these workers. One is this battle of that time process where they're waiting for the official NLRB vote and Starbucks corporate might take that opportunity to try to stop the union in some way. I mean, I don't know what they might do. There are reports in Buffalo of union busting. We'll see what happens in the cases in Boston. But the second thing is the actual contract, right? Like, 
getting to a union is a huge battle. And then once you actually are sitting down to negotiate a contract, that's what it's all about. And I think sometimes when we cover these labor stories, we forget because we're like, okay, this is the process. You got to get to the vote. Maybe they don't, maybe they accept it without an NLRB vote. Maybe they force it to a vote and then, you know, it gets like they take it to court or whatever, right? There's all, that's a huge battle and it's really important. But what's most important is the actual contract that they're able to secure because those are the terms for their their lives. That's what the workers ultimately, what will affect them the most. And, and if that process goes long enough, you know, it, 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 you know, with the natural rates of attrition and turnover in the restaurant industry, you know, by the time they get to that contract negotiation piece, a lot of those original workers that, that drove this will be long gone, right? The, the workforce in those given units will probably look, if statistics bear out, will look very, very different than the ones that initiated this effort. Well, what's interesting about the the pavement union is that there was a lot of support from former employees. So there were folks, you know, you might work a coffee shop job six months, a year, two years. You might work for a long, long time, depending on the coffee shop and the environment and whatever else, like your own life circumstances. But there were folks who had moved on to other jobs and were helping with the union effort because they wanted to see other people who had, you know, gone through what they've been through, achieve a position where they actually had more power and more, you know, more of a voice in the company. Well, Tori, I think, we, you know, we've covered Franklin. If there's any other things we haven't covered, uh, we haven't asked Tori. We've stolen enough of her valuable time on this day. That's great. Um, I'm so happy to be here. This is great. No, this, it was a lot of, it was really interesting. It's, it's you know, Buffalo is a, is not an insignificant sized town. It's a, it's a big, it's a big market. And Mesa's next to Phoenix, and that's a big market. But Boston's a huge market, and this thing gets going skiing downhill in Boston, and the landscape for the entire industry could look very different very quickly. So it's it's uh, super interesting what's going on up there. Um, hopefully, at some point down the road, as this gets closer, maybe we reach out to you again and uh, get some some more perspective from from you if if you're if you're open to that. But we do appreciate you taking the time. GBH Boston, one of the flagships of NPR. And uh, it's really a pleasure to talk to you, Tori, and meet you by pod. Yeah. Is that even a word, meeting you by pod? Sure. It is now. But thank you guys so much for having me on. This was great. And yeah, let's definitely talk more in the future because this is just the beginning, you know, of something, but just the beginning of something for sure. Much appreciated, Tori. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Well, that was interesting conversation with Tori Bedford from GBH in Boston, giving us the state of play, what's going on in that market with Starbucks and potentially uh, other segments of the coffee, you know, space going forward. Phil, uh, it's been a rock'em sock'em couple of weeks in your world. Uh, first of all, we had the results of the, the Buffalo events. We've got three more in the process in Buffalo. We got one in Mesa, Arizona, and boom, we wake up Monday morning. There's two more filings from Starbucks in Boston. Do you have any sense that what happened in 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 Boston and what happened in Buffalo will translate to Boston? You know, we had kind of a mixed result there. We had one one unit that, that voted overwhelmingly for the union. We had one unit that pretty strongly rejected the union, and we got one that's kind of still kind of up there in limbo. What is your take? What will will the Boston outcome be similar? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. You know, just kind of looking at the, you know, the sort of the post, you know, post game uh, coverage around 
Buffalo is a good place to start. So like you said, it was mixed results up there, right? You had really only one unit that was clearly for it. That's where like the main organizer was. That result, you know, is to me not terribly surprising, sort of given how, you know, how vocal and really, you know, seemed like a, like a really well-run campaign on the union side there. I think they had a lot of momentum, but at the same time, you know, it also looked like Starbucks ran, you know, kind of a full court press campaign and, you know, the results in those other two stores to me indicate like it was, you know, pretty heavily driven out of this, out of this one location. I think it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with those other three elections. So like, how does the union feel like they're doing kind of in the rest of that market, you know, outside of that like main store. So that'll be interesting. I I think based on what I've heard, the challenges that they have, I think they're going to, they're going to lose those other two units. And so then that story feels a little bit different. I, I would say strategically. Just clear. Hold on, Phil. Just clear. Yeah. Who's going to lose those other two units? The company? No, no. I think the, I think the company will win the other two units. The company that, will win the other two units. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they've got, so the, the objections in the, in the one relate to there's these ballots that they said, you know, had been dropped off, but like the board, well, and it was like, it, and it was, it was, yeah, it was like a crazy story that changed even dur- like during the, yeah, during the vote count. Like originally, it was like they slid these under the board's offices at night, and then it later turned into maybe they were slid under like some other office, you know. And the board just said, "Look, the ballots, like these are all the ballots we got." Okay, so I think that that objection doesn't go anywhere. So that election, I think it's, gets certified, you know, now they'll, they'll still file objections and there'll be a lot of legal, you know, back and forth on that. The other one is also kind of like, uh, as, as best as I understand it, not like a great issue for the union kind of saying that the, the company packed the, the unit, but the people that are on payroll, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a clear, like who's eligible and who's not. So we'll see kind of where the objections go there. Um, but that, but, it's probably Starbucks to um, SEIU one and in the Buffalo campaigns. So that being said, I think strategically, you know, there's this, there's this inflection point for the SEIU and they're clearly, I think, I think it's clear at this point, you know, you got Mesa, you've got these two Boston petitions, like this is a national campaign against Starbucks and they're going to try to get as many petitions filed as they can. I'm not sure strategically that is maybe their best move. I mean, it depends on what their goal is. If their goal is to be a pain in the ass to Starbucks and to get like a bunch of PR, then what they're doing is 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 the right approach. I mean, I just did sort of like my 2022, you know, predictions and my predictions for 2022 around this stuff are you're going to see a lot more of these high profile campaigns that honestly don't make that much sense from a like a union making money standpoint but they're designed to basically be, you know, PR campaigns, you know, they're, they're going to get a lot of publicity, like an out, an outweighed amount of publicity for kind of what's actually at stake. The flip of that is you're also going to start getting some high profile losses. You know, they're going to have to go bargain a contract in this, in this store that they lost. You know, we'll sort of see how, how much, you know, what objections and all that stuff happens, but like eventually they're going to have to prove, that they can actually get something and that's going to be difficult. You know, like if you, if you read 
the articles kind of coming out of like we won the demands that they say that they're you know that they're trying to solve by bringing in a union they're not about pay they're not about benefits they're not about you know bad treatment they're, they're we're understaffed which like you know really everyone is understaffed so yeah you're understaffed and a union is going to do exactly zero to to help with staffing if anything bring in a union where people are going to have to pay money to work at Starbucks is going to make staffing even worse because who's going to want to take that job. So that's one problem. And then the other one was like insufficient training, which isn't even like a mandatory bargaining subject. Like the, like the things that they're supposed to solve, if they, if their contract just delivers on that stuff, that no one is going to vote in a union for that. And that's the union's long-term problem is they're going to have to be able to prove that there's some like value proposition for them in these stores. So right now they've got positive momentum and they're obviously trying to take advantage of it, but long-term I'm not sure, you know, what the end game is for them. Yeah. And I, you know, two things I, I think that we talked about it briefly in the previous segment, but you know, I, it's interesting with some of the, the coverage and a lot of attention and I'm fascinated with how many newsrooms themselves are going through unionization processes. Yes. And when that, you know, if that comes to full fruition, the coverage of these, these types of issues are going to be just heightened and is going to be, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to have a very even more inflamed, you know, feel and, and, and tone and tenor to it. Yeah. It'll be hard for the, 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 the journalistic community not to be avidly rooting for them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so so the other thing that, that Tori, uh, Tori Bedford from GBH Boston said to us that I thought was interesting is she said about I don't want to misquote her, but about three quarters of the cards came back. And that's kind of like right on that Mendoza line of of support. Like that was not an overwhelming. It was obviously a clear majority, mm-hmm. but people, you know, signed the card in front of their friends, you know, just stay yes. cool you know, and, and won't, won't vote for the union when it comes time. People will change their mind, the process, you know, that, that was not a strong showing of cards in my opinion. And a lot of these cards are getting signed electronically now. And that's a lot, that, to me, that's much different than having to sign the piece of paper right in front of the person that, you know, is there. Um, but either way, you're right. Like just cause you got card signed does not mean you're going to get a vote. Um, most people are extremely uneducated about what a union is. Even the people that vote for a union in an election, they are told a lot of things that are just not true. And, and then the, the reality, once that sets in, you know, the reality of it is going to be exactly what, you know, like I, I haven't seen everything that Starbucks said, but I guarantee you what they mostly did was explain like, here's how it really works. And then you're going to be months into this and go like, oh, they weren't lying uh, in their, you know, vicious anti-union campaign. They actually were telling us the truth and um, that's going to cause a shift. And then if I'm in Boston, the first thing I'm saying is, why would you do this now? Wait and see what they do in Buffalo. Like if, the, you know, if they actually can deliver on what they say, you know, why would you test it out here? Well, you know, just see what they do there. Yeah, we'll see what happens, but yeah. So you know, I, I was also you know one of the conversations we had earlier was that you know if if it seems to me the company would take its time um, in negotiating whatever contract 
they negotiate mm -hmm. because with the attrition rates of the restaurant industry, you know, I don't know what Starbucks attrition rates are, but you know, they're, let's say they're even better than average in the industry. That's still a lot of turnover. And by the time that contract gets agreed upon, negotiated, litigated, signed and mm -hmm. enforced, that, that workforce may look completely different in those stores. And it seems to me it behooves Starbucks to play the long game on that process, you know, and it, it could look very different. Yeah. I mean, first of all, on the first contract, no, you know, no matter how fast you want to have one, takes a long time. So that, I don't think, you know, it's not even a question of slow playing it. It's just like, it takes a long time. You're starting from, you know, a, you know, they're, they're going to make proposals. Union's going to make proposals. Every single clause has to be negotiated in a first contract. There's a lot of things that are, you know, non-mandatory subjects of bargaining that they have to decide, are they going to bargain over them or not? There's, there's just a lot to do and it takes, it takes a lot of time. Uh, so that, right there. I mean, it, but either way, it's going to, it's going to take a while. I, I think, I don't think you're wrong that if it does take a long time, that's going to obviously be frustrating to anybody who thought it was going to happen fast. So, so I think there is that uh, at the same time, you know, because there's all these petitions filed, it, it might not be a bad bargain quick, but bargain hard and um, sort of get to a point either where you get, you know, a contract that, that is not that favorable to the union, you know, sort of be, have the proof point that they didn't do what they said that they were going to do or get to like an impasse point where they have to decide, are they going to, you know, are they going to strike? Are they going to like, what, you know, what are they going to, what are they going to do to try to get the contract that they, that they want? Both of those, I think, you know, those are that's probably a good place to be as you think about sort of the more global campaign. Now, from a PR standpoint and a news standpoint, you know, those probably aren't that much fun. But, um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, like they're going to run their business like that, you know, and that's, you know, the National Labor Relations Act is super clear. A company doesn't have to, you know, they don't have to agree to what a union has promised. They don't have to agree to what a union proposes. They have every right to to insist on a contract that they feel is going to give them the best opportunity to run their business. And they don't have to agree to anything other than that. So Phil, you, you touched on the, you know, the kind of the, 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 the non-operational aspects, the PR and the brand mm -hmm. stuff, you know, you, you and the, the labor relations Institute have been helping organizations navigate this space uh, very smartly for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I don't need you to out all your, trade secrets, but you had mentioned um, a few weeks ago when we talked and I kind of asked you a question about, um, you know, if, if, if I'm a, in, a, in a restaurant boardroom, if I'm at Wendy's right now, I'm at, you know, Taco Bell, whatever it is, should I be freaking out? And you, if I remember correctly, it gave me the impression. It's like, let's not overreact here. Let's, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you just said that they'll probably lose two out of the three in, in, in Buffalo and so forth. Is that still your kind of counsel to to boardrooms right now? Is to be smart, but let's not freak out. Well, the main the main thing is you want to be in front of this, right? So, like the the primary goal right now should be employees should understand that first of all, they should understand the company's position on wanting to have a direct relationship, and they should understand the importance of their signature and 
um, sort of like what what is entailed in bringing a union into an organization. And, you know, there, there's different points and different places where people are comfortable with that. Honestly, the, the, you know, the best practice there is when you orient new employees, you should, if this is something that you're concerned about at all, and today in the restaurant business, I would definitely be concerned about it. This is not just a Starbucks problem, you know, and Starbucks, frankly, is probably, I mean, it's probably one of the, I don't know if it's the best run, like, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a well-run organization. Okay. They do not have horrible working conditions. The Starbucks that I've been into and I've been in lots of them seem like a pretty decent place to work. So this wasn't this, you know, I think I said this before, but like, this wasn't about how awful Starbucks is. This is a, they're going after a big name brand uh, and trying to convince people in that store to bring in a union and it's not just happening at Starbucks. So I I would say in the restaurant industry, if I'm sitting in the boardroom, I would want to know like, what are we doing to orient folks and to make sure that we are prepared to communicate to them about this either just as they're coming into work. I think that's the best practice. Some people don't like talking about it at that point and you know, that your mileage may vary, but that's, that's the best time. Or it's, you know, and then, and then uh, if not, then you have to be prepared to like, with a flip of a switch, turn that on the second that you have concern about activity in either a geographic area or, or in a particular, you know, market or, or like if you're close to one of these stores, it's gotten a petition. So that, that, that would be the, that'd be the strategy. The problem with the second strategy is that you, a lot of times you only find out when it's too late. So um, that's why it's good to just do this as part of how you orient people. Just explain to them the facts, make sure that they understand how it works. Um, that makes it less likely that someone's just going to be able to come in and lie and and puff up, you know, what a union can do and get a bunch of cards signed before anyone even knows about it. Well, Phil, you said uh, as we came on, you, you just uh, kind of finished up your 2022 forecast. And if mm-hmm. people want to Get your expert uh, counsel on what 2022 looks like. They should reach out to you at Labor Relations Institute. But, uh, you know, will, will, will the summation be, will the, will the unions enjoy themselves in 2022? Oh, yeah. I think it's going to be a record organizing year for them. Um, I think they're going to get some really favorable NLRB decisions. Um, I mean, two that are just crystal clear that are coming are this Joy Silk case, which is the card check case. But basically making car check be sort of the default position in union campaigns. I think that's coming. The other thing that's coming is they've, they've asked for briefing. This is probably coming out in the first quarter, but asked for briefing on what used to be the specialty healthcare case. So that's PCC structurals and Boeing. Um, but they're going to go back to that micro unit union gets to pick whatever unit it wants. Um, that will be the law of the land. And, and those two things just like together really changes the playing field for unions, right? I can pick whatever tiny unit that I want. So I don't have to organize like a whole Starbucks. I can organize part of a Starbucks. I could organize the front of the house or I could organize, you know, at a, like at a, you know, at a Wendy's or something, I could organize just the kitchen. Um, you know, like you could, you know, they can pick their own unit where they ha- already know they have the support and they can get recognized just on the cards themselves without having an election, without having a, you know, a period where the employer can communicate their position and educate 
their teammates, um, that is a really, really tough environment. And that that's happening. I mean, that is coming in 22. It's going to be exciting. And I know you'll be working with lots of organizations and companies in 2022. It's probably going to be a very busy year for you as well. Uh, hopefully you'll have time to make time uh, for us little peons in the Working Lunch podcast <laughs> <laughs> come back and uh, give us some give us some advice and counsel. Appreciate you as always, yeah. Phil. You got any big plans for the holidays? Uh, let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm taking a trip to Chicago, so that'll be uh, that'll be fun. That's my old stomping grounds. It's not my favorite time of year to be in Chicago. Where on the street is, it's kind of cold Chicago this time of year. <laughs> yes, uh, it will be, but that's that's still that'll be fun. And um, yeah, that's my main big plans. What about you? I'm going to be in sunny Florida. I'm staying, staying close. It, uh, it's feeling a lot like Christmas here. It's 81 degrees as I speak on December 17th. Oh, so man. It feels festive. It feels very, yes. very festive. Yeah. It's like one big long Corona commercial with the Christmas <laughs> light from the palm trees. So anyway, my friend, uh, I really appreciate you taking time. I hope you have a, a good, uh, fun and you know wonderful holiday and a great new year. Look forward to talking to you in a few weeks and seeing how this is all playing out. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Take, Take care. care. Take care. Yeah, bye. Well, Franklin, um, it, it's great to have that local knowledge of Tori on the ground, uh, really smart journalist doing her homework. Uh, and hopefully she can join us uh, again in a few weeks and give us the, the latest and greatest what's going on up there. Uh, the Phil uh, Wilson uh, conversation was really interesting. I thought, you know, it, it was interesting his take that he thinks the unions will ultimately you know, be winners. I mean, I'm sorry, the employer, Starbucks, will ultimately be winners of two out of three uh, in Buffalo. And you now it's be interesting to see what happens with 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 uh, Boston. But he did say that, you know, 2022 is going to be a, uh, uh, a year, an unprecedented type of year. And employers better get ready. Yeah, I. Uh... I think we've been saying that for a year that like COVID has kind of changed things and changed the dynamic in the ground and something is happening and, and employers need to be aware. I'm not surprised Phil is saying that. I think I echo that, that sentiment, you know, is if you're not on your a game in this space, if you do not have good two way communication between your managers and employees, if your managers are doing things that are alienating and upsetting your employees in this environment, things can happen overnight. And we've seen that, You know, there's a lot of examples we can point to, but let's just point back to the one we covered a couple weeks ago, Tudor's Biscuits in the middle of West Virginia, right? Like that is not on anyone's radar as a labor organizing hub. Nobody, but there was a manager issue there. And a lot of what kind of Tory talked about the dynamics playing out in Metro Boston, where employees, they have legitimate concerns around health and safety that they're interfacing face to face with with patrons or their coworkers, and in many cases they don't feel like they're being a part of the decision making process around whether or not to mask or you know, and you can understand how someone that is legitimately scared about getting infected by this virus and taking it home to family members and not being involved in that decision-making process and not having good two-way communication with the manager, how that can set off a chain of events where folks want to have a third party come in and help represent them. You can absolutely understand a scenario in which that plays out. And employers that are not thinking through this, talking with their frontline managers, addressing this in a, in a very thoughtful way, in strategic way, on a regular basis, 
you're setting yourself up for a bad 2022. I mean, I, I'd say you, you've been setting yourself up for a bad 2021, but the, the chickens may come home to roost in, in 2022 if you're not careful. So you haven't been on your A game in that space. You know, it's New Year's resolution time, I would say. Yeah, and, I, and it kind of a, you know, we've been talking around this forever and kind of a light bulb went off with me is that, you know, just to just to put a bow on it is that, you know, as, as companies were figuring out their health and safety protocols and whether to wear masks and, you know, whether to be open and how, how they were going to do all that, they, they, they did it back at corporate office amongst a bunch of senior execs and people that were actually on the front lines talking to employees, you know, the employees themselves are actually dealing with the customers and out there in the trenches <clears throat> in large part were absent, not even involved and in, in invited into those conversations. And I think that's, that's the, that backlash is, is what's, what's fomenting uh, these flames and, and, and with Omicron, you know, taking off, we pl- employers have a, another chance to take another approach uh, and, put, and potentially be more inclusive. So it'll be interesting to see what, what they do. I don't want to belabor the point, um, and I didn't want to jump into Tori's interview at the time, but obviously I, I can feel the like people listening to this podcast are like, are you kidding me? Like, y- y- There were a lot of good reasons those decisions were made in corporate headquarters. There's a lot of legal concerns, number one, right? Number two, every jurisdiction was taking a different approach. So like, it, it was happening so fast and so crazily that like companies were hardly keeping up with the different jurisdictions that were putting different mandates into place, much less like coming up with some sort of cohesive corporate strategy. But your frontline employees don't have any line of sight into that. They don't understand and know the the craziness. And all they see is what their managers are telling them in the storefront. And they don't see all that unless the manager is conveying it to them. And so I think, you know, that the two-way communication, that relationship with the managers and the workers on the ground that is so absolutely critical here. And so I, I don't want to belabor the point, but I think that's that's important to kind of drill down in that. Yeah, but it goes back to what we've all, what we've talked about on so many different subjects and not, none more than the, the, the virus itself. If if employ if employers are putting the health and safety of employees first before legal concerns, political concerns, PR concerns, media concerns, they're largely inoculated. To a, to a large extent in a lot of those buckets. And it, 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 they made a choice in a lot of cases, and I'm not pointing fingers at a particular brand. They put the political and the legal and all that first and foremost. And now in large part, they're plan- paying a price for that. And there's a way they got to balance those scales a little bit better. And like I say, you put employees first, it's going to be hard to attack you. So uh, again, well, Overground's giving, chance, giving people a chance to, to have a do-over. And communicate it too, Joe, right? To the, to the customers and to the employees. We are doing this and we are taking this policy, whether it's mask or no mask or indoor dining closed or open or whatever, communicating, this is why we're doing this. We're putting first and foremost the health of our employees. You know, if you choose not to patron this restaurant as a result of that, then okay, but show the math, right? And my sixth grade, you know, algebra teacher used to always yell at me, show the math, Franklin. I never did, but you got to show the math. And, and explain, and if you explain that you're coming from it from that cus- that 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 employee centric and then customer centric approach, you're always going to have a strong leg to stand on. To your point, Joe. So we can go on and on and talk about this, but I, I think this is like we're in a critical time period now. We have election petitions popping; they're popping somewhat organically. You know, these workers are affiliating with different unions. 
we're seeing activity. I'm getting texts and emails. You know, the stuff is happening in other parts of the country that aren't even really on our kind of our watch list of, of hot spots. And so it's time to get serious in this space if you haven't already. It's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments in Franklin. Uh, big week, obviously, states are, are starting to react to Omicron. We could see dining room restrictions, vaccine passport restrictions. A lot of states are retracting. Uh, what's going on out there? It's interesting because, you know, the, the midterm election environment, we had a lot of Democrats starting to run from Joe Biden and the, and the federal OSHA mandate, you know, Joe Manchin. And then down at the state level, um, Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer and others were starting to distance himself from the OSHA standard. And then you had Omicron is now like like really taking off in some communities. And now you have this other kind of counterwind, right? You, you know, um, so a lot of people are like caught in between trying to figure out, are we going to go back to masking? Are we going to go back to, you know, shutting down indoor spaces? And, and I think it remains to be seen how all this flushes out. Omicron is going to be a large driver of that. How, how severe it is, how much it takes off, you know, the, the vaccine, the level of vaccine protection, and that's all still a bit of a question mark. But um, we do, in the meantime, have the uh, the Biden administration uh, temporary standards still working its way through the courts. Um, and uh, actually, a, a piece of it was upheld this week as it relates to healthcare workers, but the rest of it is still kind of working through that process. That will set the stage for. Um, for a lot of ongoing conversations in this space. So, so everyone's watching the courts right now um, in that case. Franklin, was that the uh, semi-unconscious move on the Gretchen Whitmer instead of Whitmer? Is that, uh, that probably made our, our friend Justin Winslow chuckle a little bit when he hears that. May have been a little bit of a, a slip there, but yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of Michigan, uh, new, new effort to uh, raise the minimum wage via the ballot uh, unleashed this week. I feel like every three years, Michigan kind of goes through this. So uh, Raise the Wage Michigan Ballot Committee um, introduced an effort to place a $15 an hour measure on the ballot. Um, similar measure was on the 2018 ballot, but the legislature intervened. Um, if we'll remember that was a, a repub legislature really kind of um, jumped in and kind of foiled it, it to some degree. And that was, I think, to $12 an hour. So anyway, we'll, we'll be watching this. That would be a big jump up for Michigan. So it would be interesting to see how this plays out. Not only $12 an hour, but $12 an hour by 2030. So I think the prevailing wage by 2030 will be $27 an hour. So kind of a moot point. Um, Franklin, Hobby Lobby, you know, Hobby Lobby gets uh, a bunch of grief for some of their uh, policies, but Nobody can argue with their their wage space. They always seem to be pushing the envelope on wages. Yeah, their owners uh, are not afraid to draw attention to themselves for their political stances. They are definitely leading in the in the wage space. Eighteen fifty an hour starting January one. That's that's a lot. Yeah, so they're they're kind of setting the market. Um, Joe, big weekend at Hobby Lobby for you. Getting doing some crafting over the holidays. I'm going to do a lot of picture framing and a little bit, a uh, little bit of origami, but um, you know, so, you know, I'll be in there talking to those employees kind of celebrating their 1850. Frank and Frank and our friends at Taco Bell uh, are uh, made an announcement that they're going to raise their minimum wage to $15, but they're going to, 
ease into it by 2024. Not not such a bold step. Eh, you know, fifteen dollars an hour company wide, I, I feel like is is bold. Um, I'm going to give them stores. That's at their company owned stores. Be specific. Eh, I, I, I still, you know, I mean, they don't have any control over the franchise units. I, I'm a, I'm still going to give them a bold mark for this. Um, you know, I don't know how many stores that is, but I'm I'm still going to give them a, a a bold, a bold run for the border. So, fifteen dollars an hour company owned stores by 2024. You are right. I guess you're kind of assuming that the majority of those are in metro markets where you know the, the interest <clears throat> is probably fourteen fifty right now or something. But um, still, it's I, I still think that's a a fairly big commitment. They deserve kind of a, a hat tip for that, and that I do think that will probably impact the labor market in some way, shape, or form. But wherever that Taco Bell is, if it's next door to a T-Mobile store, they're going to be about $5 behind the eight ball. T-Mobile going to 20 bucks an hour. Yeah, but if you're like a Chandler, then you make that, you more than make that up in free food at Taco Bell, working in Taco Bell. So you got to factor that in. Uh, a Chandler. That's, that's, uh, that's actually a really smart play right there. That's a member of the Chandler plan could easily eat $5 at Taco Bell within an hour. Uh, wow. and, and per hour all day long. 100%. So, um, yeah, $20 an hour for just retail um, uh, workforce. That's all employees, full or part-time. Wowzers, man. Wowzers. This is, this is not the world Franklin Coley had his first job in, I can tell you that. Yeah, no kidding. Um, Franklin, so switch the paid leave a little bit. Kroger um, did something this week that I thought, talk about bold. Um, I thought was pretty bold. Now, again, they're heavily uh, unionized company, but um, um, they're basically saying, if you don't get the needle and get vaccinated, you're going to pay a lot more and be uh, eligible for fewer benefits. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of like the smoking policy, right? If you actively choose not to take advantage of uh, the vaccine, then you're not going to get our emergency paid leave for if you contract COVID-19, so you're not going to qualify for that, and you're not going to get get to participate in the healthcare plan at the same level. You have to pay an additional $50 per month starting on January 1, 2022. $600 um, a year, Franklin, is $50 per month. That is, now that's either an incentive or a disincentive. Yeah, well, and, and the leave too, um, you know, that, that's interesting. We'll see how this works. I mean, everybody's trying different things to incentivize or disincentivize, you know, particular behaviors. This is an interesting one. Yeah, we'll see how it kind of plays out. Franklin, San Francisco, uh, not to be outdone by any jurisdiction anywhere, uh, amended their paid sick leave law to uh, this week to include domestic workers. Now, it still has to go through another another vote and be signed by the mayor, but uh, it, it, it already passed the board unanimously. But uh, extending paid sick leave benefits to domestic workers and nannies and gardeners. What do you think about that? So this is the second that I'm aware of um, in the country. So I know it's technically the first because San Francisco is always going to advertise they're the first. But it's very similar to the Philadelphia portable benefits structure um, that was passed for domestic workers about a year ago. There are differences here in that. San Francisco's is a much wider audience, right? So Philly's was more narrow, but, um, you know, the, the San Francisco's pulling in a lot of others. And essentially what they're, they're pulling in is 
they're they're pulling in those workers that aren't w two employees right that are often paid in cash and you know are floating between house right that's that is the the worker that this is targeting there's no reason why this portable benefit system once and this is what we said about Philadelphia once the mechanics are in place once the bureaucratic infrastructure is in place there's no reason why this portable benefits system can't be scaled up to gig drivers and then to fast food workers and then you have a portable benefit system in the city and a model for the state of california so um that's why we're watching it joe that's why it's important and it'll be interesting to see how this kind of works out in san francisco uh, Franklin, delivery, we haven't seen one of these in a while, but uh, Minneapolis made permanent their current fee cap on deliveries, another loss for the delivery folks. Yep, 15%, which is becoming pretty standard at, at this point. Um, the delivery platforms are fighting back in these, making these permanent. And uh, I do expect we'll have more probably states and localities look at doing broader delivery packages here as we kind of... I don't want to say move out of the pandemic, but get to this new normal, if you will. Um, I think we'll see a lot of activity around that. I think we'll see less activity in this space in 2022, but I think we'll see more of that type of activity. And Franklin, too, under the heading of uh, no surprise, the NLRB uh, kind of made it semi-official that it, on their priority list for the coming year is to uh, formally go after and amend the joint employer rule. Surprise, surprise. Yep. Um, this is central to organizing efforts at uh, franchise chains. We've talked about it ad nauseum here over a five-year period. So, yep, it's on the agenda. Expect them to, to act on it. The rule will have more um, – will be tougher to undo than a uh, a ruling in, in case law. So, you know – they're starting early enough that they should be able to get this out the door and approve before the end of uh, Biden's first term. But we'll have to to see how long the process takes. And that officially kicks off in, you know, I think it's planned for February when they'll f- follow that initial notice of proposed rulemaking. So obviously we'll be covering that closely. Uh, an interesting in New York City this week, uh, we talked about this at length last year there just cause law, making it uh, harder for employers in the fast food segment to to terminate workers. They had their first uh, kind of test case win this week against a Subway franchisee. Why is it like always Subway? Subway like always comes into the into the news and out of nowhere. And yeah, so um, two employees were let go in August 2021. And yeah, the, the city essentially found that it was not documented that the employer had just calls to let them go. Uh, neither of the employees had any previous disciplinary action in file and were allegedly fired without discipline or written explanation after they had unexpectedly could not come to work for a shift. Um, so this is a provision that we often see in collective bargaining agreements where the employer has to document and go talk to the union essentially before they, they let an employee go. And the union obviously is going to advocate on behalf of the employee and, and make sure they, and essentially the New York city has embedded this in kind of traditional collective bargaining agreement provision into Sydney ordinance. And so, yeah, you better be documenting, you know, your disciplinary uh, complaints and, and you better have just cause if you're going to let people go in New York city, the first scalp is in the wall. Yeah. It's kind of interesting as, as 
Paul Harvey used to say, there's the rest of the story. I'm sure there's a lot more to it. The allegations are pretty, um, pretty strong. It's actually the two employees are married. It's a married couple uh, that alleged they were late to work uh, because there was an accident. Their bus was, was late dropping them off. And they had clean sheets and clean records and were summarily dismissed. I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. But uh, regardless, uh, regardless, they didn't have they, certainly what's not in question is a thorough, thorough paperwork process and, and disciplinary and, and training process in place per the new law. Um, so it's interesting just, just to, that they're kind of the, the city has their first scalp, if you will. And it's the, against the subway franchisee. One last thing, Joe, I think New York is an is an at will state. So, you know, this hasn't really been now this would be kind of ripe to be challenged. Anyway, right. we'll see if, if this gets a court challenge. So yeah, anyway, so incidents of harm. So now somebody has standing in court now to to go after that law. Yeah, because it's in conflict with the state law, to your point, correct? I think so. I mean, I don't want to get into the legalese of it, but it, you know, it, it it has not had a lot of voracious challenges. Is would be my my hot take on it. So that's something else to watch out for. And Franklin, switching to our home state of Florida, the governor's 2024 campaign wagon continued this week with some more chum for the base. What what what's our new policy in Florida? Oh yeah, well, it's an expansion in an existing policy. So the governor via rulemaking, via the education department, had put in place a rule some months ago, I think over the summer, that essentially banned um, schools in the state from teaching critical race theory. He is now expanding upon that and putting forward proposed legislation, the Stop Woke Act, um, pretty impressive, that would not only expand on that within the education sphere, but as it relates to this audience, it would also focus on corporate trainings. How is it described in the press release was, quote unquote, woke corporate trainings. Um, so diversity, equity and inclusion. And it really focuses on the equity part of it. But uh, programs that embed what the governor views as kind of critical race theory. So he called out two training programs in particular in the press release at Google and at Bank of America. Um, and cited that those would be in violation of the new law as he um, as he envisions it. Now, the Stop Woke Act has got to be introduced in in the legislature and worked through the legislature and the Chamber of Commerce and others will put their their fingerprints on it. And so, the impacts to corporate America will probably be, you know, brought back some now that the the press conference has has concluded, right? But um, you know, it's something that now needs to be on the watch list. I can I have a feeling I can feel right now the Abbott team in Texas <laughs> getting their Stop Woke Act ready, right? And and probably other jurisdictions as well. Abbott's staff was corporate. berated for not having thought of this first. Just berated. Absolutely. And, well, I'm sure our, our legislature will, will deliberate long and hard and think about all aspects of this. My guess is it'll go through the process in about 11 seconds. And, uh, you know, have a big bill signing ceremony. It'd be fantastic. It'd be good stuff. And well, twenty twenty four commercials will be filming the whole time. On the on the vaccine mandates, you know, initially what the governor was proposing, what we thought Florida was going to do was going to be really problematic for employers. And the legislature kind of dulled down some of those sharp edges. And so I think that will probably happen here, but you know, it's going to be a process. They're going to give DeSantis a win to go campaign on. Let's be clear about that, right? But 
um, they can probably take a lot of venom out in the impact to the employer community through the legislative process. So we'll have to watch that. And we'll be watching in other states as this kind of takes off. I just can't believe Republicans regulating what businesses can and cannot say to their employees. It's, it's, it's a fascinating juxtaposition from, from 100 years of tradition. But uh, we will have another scorecard for you next time around. And until then, uh, we will be vigilantly watching the vaccine mandate. We'll be watching Starbucks and obviously all the bill files for the 2022 session. Well, Franklin, the calendar says today is December the 17th. Next Friday, when we would normally release a pod, it would be December 24th, Christmas Eve. I don't think anybody wants to hear us on Christmas Eve. So we're going to take the week off and not do a pod. You okay with that? Not even my family wants to hear me on Christmas Eve, but unfortunately they have to. The rest of y'all won't. Yeah. Well, that's the best present we can give our audience is not having to, to, to listen to us. Franklin, uh, what Santa's on his way. What, what type of weaponry will Santa be delivering you this year? I, uh, my armory is full right now. Um, so what I really need is the, uh, the build out of, of the camouflage and all that. So I have a massive amount of scent locks, very specific type of uh, gear that uh, Santa's going to leave under the tree, like eight items. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's what all Santa, I guess if I was a good boy this year, that's what, uh, that's what I'm hopeful will appear under the Christmas tree Christmas morning. If I were Santa, the last thing I would do would be bring eight or nine reindeer anywhere near your property. I would kind of just drop them off kind of at an Amazon fulfillment center and let you go get them yourself or something that would, that would no, not go near your property. But we are looking forward to a, a, a great Christmas. I hope everyone out there has a safe, healthy and happy holiday season. And we will join you the week after after Christmas and update you on the latest and greatest as always. And until then, have a happy holiday. Merry Christmas and uh, talk to you soon.